What's going on, everybody? This is your co-host, Pat. And on today's episode, we sit down with NQ. He's an award-winning poet, national poetry slam champion, and a multi-platinum songwriter having written some big hits for Selena Gomez, Miley Cyrus, Mike Posner, and Foster the People. We chat about everything from how he got into poetry and hip-hop at a young age, his songwriting career, his approach to writing and staying inspired, and some pretty deep topics that I think you all will enjoy. His new book, Inquire Within, a powerful and innovative book of poetry and wisdom designed to take your pain and transform it into growth, drops tomorrow, March 31st. You can find more info at in-q.com. That's in-q.com. Stick around towards the middle of this episode for an exclusive performance by InQ just for you guys. Also, if you enjoy what you hear, please hit that subscribe button and follow us on social at The Founder Hour and sign up for a newsletter for updates and more. We kicked off the conversation by learning a bit about Q's childhood. Uh, born and raised in Santa Monica. Uh, my mom's school teacher. My father was not around. I uh, didn't meet him at all until I was 15 years old. When I was like 13, I fell in love with hip hop and you know, just loved the expression of it, the energy of it, the emotion of it. And so I started freestyling with my friends and then I started writing and, you know, there were a bunch of producers around. So I was battling people and making records. And at the time, you know, you needed to find an A&R to get yep. your music out into the world. Um, I'm 41. You guys are younger than me. So it was a very different time period man you couldn't get directly to the audience we're talking about like this is like late 90s yeah 96 yeah something like that yeah and um and so you know if you didn't have a connection you know it was really difficult man and i didn't have any connections we didn't know anybody so uh we just kept making demos man and who's we like like students in your school like i had uh, partners at the time different people that i rapped with different rap groups different production teams and uh, couldn't quite figure out how to connect the dots in that way. And when I was 19, I ended up at an open mic for poetry in Los Angeles called the Poetry Lounge. Mm-hmm. And that is, you know, one of the biggest, if not the biggest, open mics for poets in the entire country. And we get 350 people every single week who would show up and just listen to the people sign up on a list and, and spit their words. And I got up on stage. I started doing my rapping a cappella. And people really responded to it. And, you know, eventually that group of people became a community for me and the community became a family. And we, you know, we all, we were on HBO's Deaf Poetry Jam together. We won the National Poetry Slam Championships together. And one day I woke up and I realized I was more of a poet than I was an MC. And uh, and that was, that was really where the journey began. You know, and that was my next question was, you know, what made you realize that, you know, you were more of a poet and less of an MC. Like, what what are the things that made you feel that way? Well, first of all, I couldn't figure out how to monetize my hip hop. I mean, you know, the whole time that I was doing the poetry lounge and you know showing up, which I literally went every single week and put up work for like fourteen years. You know, I wasn't making any money. You know, couldn't figure out how to get the exposure that I wanted. And um, and so most of the time that I was going there, like for me, it was just, first of all, an amazing environment where I felt people were celebrated for telling the truth and for their vulnerability, which I thought was like unbelievable. Mm-hmm. 
and also a place for me to work out, you know, to take the stuff that I was writing and express it on stage, you know. Um, but I think I always secretly thought that I was still going to get signed. Right. You know, and that I would kind of be able to blow up as a hip hop artist the way that I had always imagined. But that's the thing is, is oftentimes in life, we want something. And then we basically like never check in on whether or not we still want it. We just keep pursuing the thing that we want. And we never stop to go, wait a minute, like, have I changed like what I actually wanted or like along the way you miss all these other opportunities that could have been even bigger or better for you because you're so focused on something that you think you want and then once you get there you're like oh shit what about all those other things that right could have done right yeah i mean i write about this in the book i mean the there's a difference between ideas and ideologies you know ideas are tools that you can use in your life that will change as your truth and your experience changes but ideologies are things that you have to force everything in your reality into the frame of. They're almost like prisons, you know? And if you don't force everything in your reality into the frame of that ideology, you will lose control over that ideology. And if your ideology lasts long enough in your life, it'll become your identity. So that's why it's so hard for people to change. Because for people to change their minds, you know, if your ideology is your identity, that means a part of you has to die. You know, so people hold on to who they think they are with everything that they can. And uh, I would say that for a long time, it was like, that's what I was. It was a part of my identity to be an MC. And then I realized I was not in the flow of life. But just to play devil's devil's advocate here, don't you think that that sort of prison mentality, that ideology, that obsessiveness made you as good as you were like had you not had that sort of focus and that sort of you know practice and constantly just doing it and doing it and doing it that you wouldn't have actually been that good of course but it's an unsustainable fuel source right you know you're gonna so what's the happy medium what do you mean what's the happy medium between being that good at something that you want or think you want and enjoying life and keeping an open mind and having other ideas and not being locked up into prison. You have to pay attention to where you are now, right now, you know, not where you think you should be, not where you thought you wanted to be, you know, not taking your projections from the past and bringing them into this moment, like literally being here, seeing how it feels, you know, being willing to change your mind. You don't even have to change your mind. You just have to be willing to realize that you have the freedom of choice. You know, nothing you do in life is an obligation, including following your dreams. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, you mentioned, uh, you know, the, being a hip hop artist was sort of your identity, at, you know, when you were in high school. Um, what did that like necessarily, because I, I feel like a lot of students in high school, you know, have this like aspirations to be rap, a rapper or like a hip hop artist, especially right. today, right? Because it's all, a lot easier to get your music out there and to get noticed, to get signed. It, it's, it's harder in the sense that there are a lot, of more, a lot more people think doing it. But for you, like why, what made it so, so real and serious? Like was it, did you get some sort of validation from the folks around you that you were good at it? Or was it more like you just had this deep desire to be a hip-hop artist, a spoken word? You know, I mean, I was artist. definitely good at it. <laughs> yeah. There was no doubt about that. Um, no one who ever heard me ever questioned that. I think that... It was 
an outlet for the other stuff that I had no other way to get out of my system. You know, I mean, I never really quite felt like I belonged in life. When you grow up without a dad, you have a tendency to externalize what your masculinity is supposed to be like. You look around and you're, you know, you're always questioning yourself and your environment. I didn't really have any mentors either. Yeah. I didn't let men close to me at all. Like I didn't trust people. So, you know, there was always a sense of who should I be, you know, and, you know, asking deeper questions about myself and where I was and, you know, all of that. And I think that like being able to freestyle and being able to put my thoughts into one place and to say them with the emotion that I had no other, you know, way to get out was like freedom, man. Plus, when you're freestyling, you can't think about anything else but the next word or the next rhyme. Yeah. I always wondered how they, how like you guys do it. How yeah, do you, like, you're how sitting you... in front of a microphone at my home, you know, yeah, yeah. whatever, you yeah. know, I'm looking but at my like phone. are you like thinking about the, the, getting the, in the zone? Are you thinking about the last word of the second line before you say the first one? <laughs> so you know I that mean, you're going to rhyme it? Everybody has a different way of doing it. Like, I don't yeah. really consider my, I'm not a freestyler anymore. Yeah, I don't yeah. practice it. It's not, right. you yeah. know, but, but. However you do it, you have to be in them now, man. You, there's yeah. nowhere else for you to be. Right. As soon as your mind starts drifting, you're, you're like just Yeah, off. you're going you're gonna to fall. Your, your train is going to go off the tracks. You're on the train. You are the train. Mm. And you are the tracks. And you're building the tracks as you're going. Mm. So you can't think about anything else. You know? And... You know, for somebody who thought about everything else all the time, I mean, it just dropped me in. What do you think made you, was it the fact that, like, what, what do you think made you so good at it? Was it the fact that you were just naturally curious and you wanted to know more and more about yourself, the world, everything around you? Or um, did you, like, practice a lot? Did you study a lot of different rappers and freestyle artists or whatever? Like, how did you go about becoming really good at it? Um, I mean, yeah, definitely practiced a lot. I mean, I probably put 25,000 hours into rhymes in general, whether it's songwriting or poetry or, or rhyme, you know, emceeing or, um, and then add acting or just time on stage, you know, so I've spent a lot of time, uh, exploring art, you know, and exploring my voice and, you know, no one can teach you what your voice is as an artist. That's why teaching is so interesting. As I said, my mom's a teacher. I have great respect for teachers and I have great respect for people who teach art, but you can't teach someone what their voice is. You can teach them techniques, you know, like tools that they can use to express themselves through that particular genre, but you can't teach someone that true, you know, voice that is inside of them. You know, learning what your voice is as, as an artist only comes from using it. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's like Miles Davis quote, you know, he's like, it took me so long to learn how to play like myself mm. or sound like myself. You know, I'm butchering the quote, but that's the yeah. essence of it. Mm. Um, and it really does. It, it takes a long time to be able to uh, truly show up. You mentioned earlier that you realized that the MC route wasn't going to make any sort of money for you. So why, why the switch? I mean, did you now find a path to making money doing the poetry thing? No, I mean, you know, 
first of all, I didn't make any money until I was past 30, you know, and I went to college for one year and then I went to SMC. I got in a fist fight on campus. And I, by the way, I was already bored. So it's not like I left yeah. because I got in a fist fight. I was just done, mm-hmm. you know? Were was, you bored because you just didn't think that anything was interesting or? It just wasn't my passion, man, you know? Yeah. And what were you studying? What were you like? Communications, because that was the default thing to do. <laughs> when you don't know what the fuck you want to do, yeah. you say communications. Yeah. So, you know, I was sitting in class writing raps. I wasn't interested. And, uh, you know, follow the path and the path will lead the way. And what does that mean? It's like follow your enthusiasm. Mm -hmm. Oh, you don't know what you're enthusiastic about. You don't know what your purpose is. You don't know what your passion is. What are you curious about? Everybody can tell, you know, say, I'm curious about this. What do you, okay, you don't know what you're curious about. What are you interested in? Like just Mm -hmm. something. Like boil it down to something. Something simple so you can follow the breadcrumbs. Right. But for you was that writing music uh or was it something else yeah yeah it was it was you know i always saw myself as as making it in quotation marks whatever that meant and when i transitioned into poetry i just realized i wasn't in the flow of life i was getting other validation from life and i'm not saying validation from people although of course my ego wants that and Mm -hmm. you know there are different ways that validation ego success end up co-opting you know, whatever it is that you're doing, even if you started out in the purest way. Well, that validation at least helps you know that you're on a on the right track in a way. But that's what I was saying. There's a difference between um, that unhealthy external validation and then the validation of life. Right. Life can give you validation too, where you're like, oh, okay, I'm in the flow. When you're in the flow of life, that's a validation that you're moving in the right direction. For a very long time, I felt like I was, you know, holding on to the rocks, trying to go backwards upstream, you know? And yet, to your point, which is a great point, that's how I put in my hours, man. You know, and had I not had that obsession, I wouldn't have collected all of this time, you know? But at a certain point, it was unsustainable, and if I didn't change my fuel source, you know, I wasn't going to last. So what did you do to make money? Yeah, so I ended up getting a publishing deal with a company called Rock Mafia. They're like a production team and uh, studios and uh, amazing, amazing writing duo. And they also became a family for me over the years and gave me opportunities to write on pop songs. And at the time, I wasn't even ever listening to pop and this songs. is like your early, your early 20s? No, it's my early 30s. Got it. So, so yeah, when, when, I guess between the time that you, you said you left college, right? Yeah, 19. What, what were you, so at 19, until that time, like, what were you doing in between? You were just sort of at the... Fucking hustling, bro. I was in yeah. the world, man. I, but how were you, like, making money to just, like, survive? I had, like, interim period jobs until I was, like, 26, maybe 27, and then... But, I mean, they were part-time jobs. I just... It was enough to get by. I was always just doing enough to get by so that I could focus on the thing that I really loved. Mm-hmm. You know, um, but you were still doing the poetry stuff as well the whole time because if you find a space where you can express yourself rather than you know having to like rent out a fucking theater to do a show, I mean, it, it costs money to be a musician, right. especially at that time. Yeah, you know, now you could just make some shit and put it up, mm-hmm. and people, if they respond to it, 
you know, you're directly connected to them. You can create an audience and then all of a sudden the record companies will come to you. Yeah. Or you don't even need the record companies. You'll just go on tour. There's so many people out there who are making amazing, amazing music that we've never heard of that have huge fan bases. They're just niche fan bases mm -hmm. that found them based on, you know, connecting directly with the audience. Right. So at the time, you still couldn't do that. And... um and so, you know, it was, it was a process. But I kept going back to the lounge because I kept writing shit that I had to say. One thing that I'm trying to understand, though, is, again, like, this was, you know, you talk about it was, like, your early 30s when you started seeing some signs of, you know, this is, this is going somewhere. And in between that time, you know, when you're in your mid-20s, late 20s, these are the times when I think a lot of people just have this, like, anxiety of, shit, I'm going to turn 30. Like, I got to get my shit together. I got to get my life, like, life together. How am I going to yeah. make money? How am I going to, you know, get a, make a, create a family and that, all that kind of stuff. Like, I can imagine friends of yours or people that you knew were going off and building careers in their own respective ways. But for you, like, did you ever deal with that? Did you ever have that, like, I wonder if I'm on the right path? Of course. I wonder, what am time. I going to do, you know? All the time, man. You know, I, I didn't choose to do what I'm doing it chose me. <laughs> and I really mean that because if, if you don't want to be an artist, like, you, I mean, it's easier in many, many ways to pursue something that has structure, you know? But even that is, you know, there's that whole uh, Jim Carrey thing about his dad. You know, his dad wanted to do something that was artistic and he didn't wind up doing it. And he wanted to play it safe, and he ended up getting this safe job and putting whatever 30 years into it, whatever the story is, and then he got fired anyway. And so that was the thing that Jim Carrey learned from that was, you know, if you can get fired and have it all fall apart by taking the safe route, as might as you'll just go after the thing that you really love. You know, so it, nothing in life is easy to choose to pursue. But, um, but being an artist is a calling, man. Yeah. And uh, I kept picking up. But you mentioned like, and I'm, I'm actually surprised that you thought that, um, I feel like it, it, most people would think that they would make more money, you know, trying to pursue rapping or music than poetry. Because I feel like, it, like you said, there's a clear path, a more clear path, like more people have done it. So you kind of can see the, the, the trajectory of that path. But for you, like, did you, did you see some sort of path to becoming, or I guess, you know, doing well enough where you didn't have to worry about paying, making the payments and that kind of stuff with the poetry? No, what happened is, is that I, I was lucky enough to start having success in songwriting. And it, that gave me some financial freedom. Yeah. I mean, I wrote songs for Selena Gomez and Miley Cyrus, 40 Disney songs. You know, we had two songs go gold mm -hmm. last year. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and then eventually Foster the People and... Uh, people I listen to, uh, Aloe Black, uh, Mike Posner. And, um, you know, creatively, it made me a better artist to have to imagine someone else's experience, to write in a really round way rather than this, like, rhythmic, choppy way. Mm -hmm. So I had more tools after I started doing that. And when I went back to write for myself, I was able to use them kind of in a new way. So I would say being a songwriter made me a better poet. And then that financial freedom allowed me a foundation to build off of. I mean, I love poetry. Yeah. I think, you know, poetry is some of my favorite art experiences were in the audience watching other poets on stage. Mm. And so, you know, 
for me, it's something I believe in. And I think it makes people feel less alone. It, it creates empathy. And I think empathy is what the world needs most right now. Okay. So uh, for me to pursue poetry after that was a conscious decision. And to figure out how to create a business around it, um, which partially my manager helped with, Kevin, without losing my artistic integrity. Hmm. And before we get into all the... I know you like mentioned a bunch of these artists that you worked with. You ha you mentioned earlier about Rock Mafia and working there or starting to work there when mm -hmm. you were in your early 30s. What was that experience like and what did that teach you? Well, the thing that I just mentioned, I mean, artistically, I had to go outside of my own experience to write. So I used my imagination. I mean, if I'm writing a Disney song that's for a disney tv movie that's out of a script mm -hmm. that's a different muscle than me just writing a poem for right. myself or writing a rap and uh you know like anything man if you pursue any art it's gonna like give you a different perspective and that perspective then you can apply back to your first love mm -hmm. and so i did um and then also just being around the success of the studio, you know, and being a part of it, you know, there's a, there's a thing of, um, plugging into the cultural zeitgeist, you know, when you do something that millions and millions and millions of people hear, mm -hmm. and it's a unique feeling, you know, like the one that I was just talking about that went gold. I mean, this has, what song was that? Uh, it's called queen of mean. Oh. This song has like, I think, a billion views or something like that. Right? Wow. I actually have to look, but it's like insane, you know? And so to think about it, I don't think it has a billion, but it's, it's fucking up there. It's like really <laughs> gnarly, man, yeah. you know? Um, you know, okay, 200 million. It just passed 200 million. But I definitely, like on all my stuff, I definitely have more than a billion right, right, listens right, right. for sure. Well, like uh, the Selena Gomez song is Love You Like a Love Song, right? Yeah. Which is... When it's a huge song. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah. whatever that is, I mean, when you, when you feel that, when you create something in your mind and in your heart and it reaches that many people, you're like, damn, I can do that. You know? And I hadn't done that with my own stuff, but it was my creation. But how are you? You know, you along to... with uh, the people that I wrote with, which was, you know, the people that run the studio, Tim James, Antonina Armato, you know, Thomas Sturgis, you know, we... We're, we're a team, you know. How were, because a lot of these songs, or some of them at least that you mentioned, were like pop songs. They weren't like hip hop songs. They weren't rap right. songs. So, how were you able to transition from being like a poet, which is primarily like what rap is like, to writing a pop song? Like, how did you go about? You know, you just hang out with people that are better than you, man. That's what you do. And then you try to find a way to uh, use your unique voice in that particular thing. I mean, when I started out, I wrote one of the songs with them for Miley. And then after that, it was a bit of a lull. And I just remember I would go to the studio. I had no other means to make money at the time. You know, it's not like just because I decided, damn, I feel like I'm more of a poet. You right. know, poetry as a genre isn't really monetized, you know. So it was still a very difficult path to figure out how to make a business out of it and then once i had an opportunity to make a business out of it i wanted to make sure i didn't lose the thing that i loved about it which was an interesting hurdle in and of itself but 
you know, after that thing with Miley, I remember just sitting in the studio trying to figure out ways to get involved in songs. So they would be writing like a Disney thing. And uh, I would just sit in on the session, you know, and then I would like write a rap or something like that. And, you know, I'm literally like writing these Disney raps, which is like against my religion, basically, from where I came from, you know, and what I thought. But I was in a position where I was like, I have to try something new because what I'm doing is Do you remember what some of those raps were? I'm curious. There was this ridiculous (laughs) song called Twist My Hips that we did that ended up going gold. Oh, you actually did it? Yeah, dude. And what happened is, is I ended up rapping on it. They would slow the track down. And I'd rap on it slow, and then they'd speed it back up, and I sounded like a little kid. Oh, man. And oh, for a God. lot of these television things, you know, it wasn't – some of them, they had the actual actors come in and sing it mm-hmm. or rap it. Mm-hmm. But a lot of them, they didn't need that because it was like a dance routine or whatever the fuck, you know? Mm-hmm. So actually, my voice would wind up being in there. Mm-hmm. And so I did it under this uh, the name Nevermind. Because I was like, never mind. You know, I don't care about this stuff. But then again, I did care about that stuff because that's what allowed me to pursue, you know, the thing that I loved. And it did allow me to have that feeling of success and connection with, you know, the wider audiences that are out there. Um, And I learned a lot. So, you know, I'm unbelievably grateful for those experiences. And how do you, for those who are like trying to be songwriters or are currently songwriters, how do you how do you create like a repeatable like business out of that? How, do, how does it, how does it become like, is it just, you just have to put yourself out there and see what opportunities come your way or is there like more, more to it than that? It's hard for me to answer that question because I was really lucky. My mentor at the time and still great friend, Ross Hogarth brought me to rock mafia. And if he hadn't connected those dots and rock mafia hadn't been willing to take a chance on me, uh, I would not be in the position that I'm in today with songwriting. And probably wouldn't be in the position that I'm in with poetry, you know. So um, they had worked really hard. They're really, really brilliant writers and producers. And they had created all those relationships and had a lot of success. And they brought me into their camp. And, And so I never had to go out searching, you know. And then what ended up happening is I had other people that I was friends with. You know, Posner and I are friends. Aloe Black and I are friends. You know, Mark Foster and I are friends. And people would see me perform and they would be like, yo, I want to write with you. Mm. And so then sometimes I would bring things into the studio or I'd do it independently. But I've never really sought after being a songwriter. Mm. I think the only session that I ended up sitting in on was uh, one time I sat in on a session with Geta. And, uh, I don't think anything happened with the song. And he had never even heard me perform my poetry. Yeah. You know, so it was like like a cold session. It's like a dating room or something. You sit right. in, you don't really know the other musicians yeah. and you, you try to create something. And sometimes it's amazing and, and Does that sometimes happen a lot? it's trash. Like when I don't know for you, but like in gen- general, like an artist or writer will come in and work on something and just doesn't end up making the cut and you just don't know until you know. Yeah, I mean, with uh, with Rock Mafia, we have a really good track record. So usually if we create something, it winds up going somewhere. Yeah. Um, but I'd say there's a lot of people out there who are like session musicians and they travel around from session to session and sometimes they hit and sometimes they miss. They're always putting in their hours. You know, they're, they're finding new connections, relationships. Uh, and that's awesome. But like for me to do that, I would have to be in love with songwriting. And I'm not. 
I just love songwriting, but I'm not in love with songwriting. You know, I'm in love with poetry still to this day. And, uh, and also, you know, in terms of being an MC, I mean, I'm still the biggest fan of hip hop. I mean, anybody, you know, Kendrick Lamar, man, I'll just literally put on the headphones and disappear into his experience. Um, and I think he's a poetic prophet, you know, Jay Cole. There's a lot of people out there who are doing amazing, amazing uh, music right now. Um, but I don't feel like I put myself in that category anymore. Like I would always consider myself an MC because it's cellular for me. Mm-hmm. You know, it's where I started. And it definitely, the DNA of that is in everything that I do in my poetry. But I don't really like consider myself like contemporaries of, of these people anymore. What would you say is the main difference, in your opinion, between an MC and a poet? Because one can argue like Tupac Shakur was a poet. I mean, he was he a is. poet. He, he a poet. was a poet. Yeah. He wrote a poetry book. Exactly. I know. I know. Like, but yeah. like, yeah, like it wasn't something that he like rapped on record, but he was a poet even on record. Like he was writing poetry for, for, but I guess for you, like what is the main distinction between the two? I mean, it's hard for me to make that distinction. I've let other people make distinctions between art. All art inspires me, you know? No, but so you said you, like, you don't consider yourself, you, you, you're more passionate about poetry than music or like being an artist that's what i'm trying to understand like how do you what do you how do you like make a distinction between being an mc and i just listen to myself like i'm saying that i i'm not in love with songwriting yeah like because if i was then i would fucking travel around to those sessions i just try to get on any song i could because i'm in love with it you know for me it's like i write if i respect the artist or if i know there's a possibility that the song will go somewhere and there's a way for me to make money as long as it's not like... Just a job. No, it's not just a job. It's creative. So there's something that I'm learning from it. I enjoy the experience. I think it's an amazing thing. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't fully light me up the same way that poetry does. Mm. You know? And, um, and so I take my own advice. I mean, I'm following my enthusiasm. But anytime I get to do a, a songwriting session with people you know, who do that for a living and that is their passion. And there's always things that I learn that I bring back to my poetry. And it's amazing to create in a collaborative way because, you know, when I'm writing my shit, I'm just on my own, man. Mm -hmm. You know, nobody tells me anything. I just, you know, um, the way that I write is I just try to stay aware of the things that inspire me, the things that move me or the things that annoy me. And I start my poems there. And if I start my poem in a place that's true, everything else will almost happen on its own. It's like if I give it enough time and space, the poem will write itself. But it's collaborative to sit and create with other people. It's an awesome experience. I'm curious, the name NQ, where did that come from? When did it come from? How? Why? Give us that story. So NQ originally was Inquire. So it's like Inquiry. And uh, that was given to me by my buddy. And it was because I was, you know, always asking questions, very curious about people. Even at that age, I was like 15 or something like that. And he was like, you know, your MC name should be Inquiry. And I was like, oh, that's cool. And then people just started calling me NQ. And, uh, and then it got shortened to, you know, in question. We changed the actual meaning of it. But it's all the same thing. Mm. It's, uh, you know, it's a life philosophy. Um, what would you say, how do you, what do you do to like get inspired? Let's say, um, you're maybe like not in the best position. Um, I don't know, mentally, 
Uh, do you have some sort of resource or something you turn to? Is it reading? Is it talking to people? Is it listening to music? Like, what do you, how do you inspire yourself? Well, I just, as I said, I just pay attention. I mean, I guarantee that if people paid attention to what inspired them, what moved them, or what annoyed them, they would have a lot of material to start from. But mostly people just, you know, it happens and then it just goes away. You know, they never stop and say, well, I could create something with that. You know, I don't uh, force myself to create. You know, it's too much pressure, man. Yeah. Imagine sitting down on an empty page or an empty canvas. Yeah. Well, I'll just take the page for a second. And having a complete blank page, infinite possibilities, and saying to yourself, I have to make something great right now. That's like exhausting, man. Yeah. I mean, really, you know, I would rather just like look around, go live my life. And then when something happens, you know, I stop and I write it down. And then I go back to that place. And, you know, if I start from there, um, you know, it's it's already true. Mm-hmm. So um, after, I mean, I know you're still sort of writing music whenever the opportunity comes, but how do you, I guess, envision um, like the poetry thing panning out as far as, I know you, you just wrote a book, which we'll talk about, but as far as poetry, like how, how, what do you do? What's your approach to, to getting it out there? Like, I know you, you know, you have YouTube videos and you've done Ted talks. Um, but is there like a specific mission or plan of, you know, trying to read like how you're going to try to reach more people with it? Or is it kind of just, you know, like you said, you just live your life and you, you write a poem and put it out there and whoever reads it, reads it. I mean, look, we, we do 60 or 70 shows a year. Mm-hmm. Um, some of them are company and corporate shows or poetry workshops. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then some of them are just public shows. And uh, I travel around the country and the world, you know, getting a chance to perform my poems and tell my stories to audiences from 50 people to 6,000 people. And, uh, and the book that we have in Choir Within that's coming out is with uh, Harper One, which is the spiritual division of Harper Collins. They do like The Alchemist and The Four Agreements. and um, All great books. Great, great books. Yeah. Books that I'm a fan of. Yeah. You know? And uh, so that's exciting to finally have that out in the world and the audio book out in the world and, and to see the ripples. Are you narrating it? Uh, yeah, man. I'm good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we did two and a half hours. And yeah. so proud of it, man. It's like really, really amazing. Tell us and how that whole tell tell us how the idea for the book came about. Um, how did well, we had we had sold out um, the Ace Theater in downtown LA, so that was sixteen hundred, seventeen hundred people, mm-hmm. and uh, it was a really great scene, man. Like, you know, Rosario Dawson was there, and um, you know who else was there? Chris Martin was there, uh, Demi Moore. It was just like a Really, this is like an star-studded, yeah, yeah, yeah. NQ show, yeah, yeah, and it was a star-studded audience and um, just amazing, amazing energy in the room. Did you know they even like consumed your your stuff, or was it like um, they just showed up? Yeah, I mean, a lot of people showed up. You yeah. know, so when is this? Uh, it was two years ago. Yeah, and uh, we filmed it. Um, 
And, you know, it was like a fucking full-on production. And my plan was to go sell this to, like, you know, Netflix or, you know, HBO or something like the that. The show? Yeah. 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 Because um, I got on stage, I did an hour and 15 minutes, hour and a half or something like that. Just straight poetry. Yeah. Yeah, I tell stories in between. It's a lot of... Neither one of you have seen me perform, huh? I've, I've seen, seen videos. videos. Yeah, I haven't okay, seen you, I haven't not, seen you that's live. That's not it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's not it. Anyway, so... Um, the videos are just like, it's like a Trojan horse <laughs> trying to figure out a way to translate what I actually do in person. Um, so anyway, so it, amazing, amazing response. And, uh, and yet we had a hard time selling it afterwards because the genre um, isn't fully formed yet in terms of like pop culture is concerned, you know? Mm. They're like, what is poetry? Are people going to, you know, if it was a comedy special, we would have sold it, you right. know? But poetry, yeah. they're like a little hesitant about, you know? Yeah, it's like, where does it fall under? Exactly. And if I had had a huge audience, then it wouldn't have mattered. Right. Because they would have been like, well, fuck it. He has a huge audience, right, right, right. you know? But that's not the case. I, we've had 70 million views or something on the different poetry videos mm -hmm, that I've mm -hmm. put out. But I don't have a fan base of 70 million people. Right. So we had a hard time selling it. And, uh, and so then I was like, well, what, what do I want to do next? And I had never even made a product, man. Like this book is the first product we've ever made. And I don't mean product like in a bad way or marketing tool. I mean as a home for my art. Right, like a tangible thing. Like something that people could yeah. hold, you know? The, these poems have always been living, breathing documents, man. I would just show up, I would perform, and then I'd vanish. And they would change and evolve as I would change and evolve. So I would edit them, you know? I said, I don't believe in that anymore, you know, or whatever. And so they grew with me, you know? And so I was talking to my friend Rudy Francisco, who's an amazing poet, and he was I on love Fallon. His poetry. Yeah, yeah. So we're part of the same community. Yeah. And uh, he got on Fallon. And so I was like, Rudy, how'd you get on Fallon? And he was like, you know, they brought me on as an author because he had put out a book. <laughs> and the thing is, we, we were like trying to figure out how to get booked on, you know, Fallon and these other late night shows. And, uh, and then I realized, oh, I have to figure out another angle because when they booked him as an author they of course let him read his poem hmm. and he crushed it because he's an amazing amazing poet and anytime something like that happens it changes people's perception of what poetry is and what it can be you know there's so many amazing poets out there that have inspired me over the years that never really truly got the limelight that they deserved um and so at that point we were like all right you know why don't we try to create something that we can build everything else off of? Mm -hmm. And, uh, and that's where inquire within came from. And what's the book about? You know, it's interesting because I don't strategize my inspiration. And what I mean by that is I don't like look around and think, what does my audience want to hear right now? Or like, what would be popular? Like, what's a social issue that I could write about? I don't do that, man. I, I think that's one step away from manipulation. And I think I don't, like, judge anyone else for creating however is best for them, but that's not how I create best. And I think I would lose my voice if I did that. Um, so I just kind of write from 
the place of what it is that's going on with me. And I trust that if I write something that's true to me, it will be true to other people. Not everybody, but it will resonate with whoever it needs to resonate with. So is, it's, is it like a series of poems or is it like a linear story? Yeah, so, it's a, so but I'll, I'll explain that. So, yeah. so if you look at the cover, it's a, you know, it's a tree mm-hmm. and then on the bottom is the roots. And so the branches mirror the roots. And then when you turn it to the side, it looks like lungs. Mm. And there's two parts to the book. It's inhale and exhale. And uh, the inhale is like personal poems. It's like the poetic hero's journey. And exhale is social and political pieces. And so it's, you know, change yourself, change the world. Um, But as I was trying to say, you know, bringing all of these pieces into one place, even with the conceptual through line that I was creating in each half and in the whole book in general, I got a chance to see what I've been trying to say all of these years. Because when you don't strategize your inspiration, you're surprised by the end of your poem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I don't know where it's going. So this is really what I think it's about. I think that consumerism is constantly trying to take from us. You know, it's taking our likes, it's taking our love, it's taking our time, which we can't buy more of, you know. It's taking our information these days. It's taking our energy. It's taking our attention. And I think that we're unconsciously trained to look outside of ourselves for the answers. You know, so if I don't know something, what do I do? I look on Google or I go to YouTube or something like that. And technology is an amazing tool, man. You know, we're sitting here right now in my living room. We're recording this. We've never met before. And we have really no way of quantifying how this will impact and influence the people that are going to listen to this. Maybe it will, maybe it won't, but we won't know often, Mm. you know? And it's connected the entire world, and yet simultaneously it's made people feel more lonely and isolated than they ever have in the past. People are disconnected from their communities. They feel disconnected from themselves and from their own internal voice. And so I think there's a difference between using your tools and having your tools use you. And so anybody who's listening to this, you know, if you have something going on right now and you can't figure it out, of course you can ask a friend, you know, or you can consult a coach and those are amazing things to do. You can listen to a podcast. It's fantastic. But also I would suggest that you find some time to just be alone. To just be by yourself or to be in nature and allow the noise of this modern world to fall away so you can actually hear your one true voice because that voice is going to be your true north. That's going to be your answer. And this book, Inquire Within, you know, I had to inquire within myself to create it. I'm asking people to inquire within the pages to read it and to inquire within themselves and I hope that this book ultimately winds up being a window into people hearing their own one true voice. Love that. Yeah. You, you know, you mentioned that before you even wrote this book or, you know, while you were writing this book, that it didn't really, you didn't strategize the audience or what the audience wanted or anything like that. But who do you think will actually be the one picking up this book and reading it? Uh, it's not really my business. I mean, I could, I could answer that question from the standpoint of marketing, 
you know, like the PR agencies, they're saying, who do you think, what's your demographic and, mm. you know, how do we market to that demographic and all that. But, you know, it's the same thing as the people that come to my shows, man. People come to my shows in their 80s and there are nine-year-olds there. Because I think I'm speaking to the human experience. It doesn't matter your race, your politic, politics, whatever. You might not agree with something that I say, but everything ultimately that I'm talking about is just the human experience. And we have different circumstances, but we all have the same story, man. We all are living it together. Um, and so I don't know. I, I don't need to like, for myself at least, I don't need to say it's for these people. Mm-hmm. I think it's for anybody that decides to pick it up. And then I don't even need them to get anything specific. I just hope, as I said, it's some sort of a portal to them hearing whatever it is that they need, you know? So, so I, I think you might kind of sort of answered it, but what would you say for this book? Like, what would the ideal situation look like in terms of this was a successful book for you? Like, is it just getting feedback from people like, hey, I read it, like, it inspired me, like you know, I was able to inquire within myself and figure something out that they were, you know what I'm saying? Like, what, like, what is it? What is it for you? What is well, there's, there, there's like the things that I could say from like the physical world, you know, of course I'd love it to be a national bestseller or New York times bestseller. I would love it to sell a million copies. Uh, you know, I think poets should be on the cover of Rolling Stone and open up Saturday night live and, have their own sitcoms and I believe in that wave. And so, you know, I'm just like grateful to to do my small part and to be writing it. Um and that would, you know, all those things would be amazing, but I also like that's none of those things need to happen for me to feel like this book is a success. It's a success already, man. Yeah. And I mean that. Like I did every single thing that I could do to make this the best that I could make it and to do justice to the poems. You know, I, I believe that these poems are separate from me now. You know, I have a line in the book that's the art is more important than the artist is. And I believe that. Now, of course, I'm important to myself. You know, I'm not going to front like, you know, I don't want things or whatever. I don't want people who are listening to this to buy the book. But ultimately, it's not mine anymore. I created something that's in the world, and now it can have a life for other people. And so that's a success in and of itself, that I felt like I did everything I could do to do justice to the poems, and now I want to fully give them away. Mm-hmm. On the more general topic of poetry, I've been, I've been personally listening to slam poetry for like years, and I was first introduced to it uh, in college when I was on a mock trial team, and our coach took us to actually listen to how People were performing. Is that the debate team? Similar. It's like okay. based on like courtroom, uh, courtroom stuff. Are you uh, a lawyer? I went to law school. Okay. Uh, but to like learn how they were performing the words and like the theatrics around it, and obviously because law is very boring, right? Like I mean, it's it's very hard to make it interesting. Mm-hmm. But to make the other person engaged, it's important to obviously have that sort of communication and you know like we joke around about communication but i do think that poetry is a very strong form of communication so what i'm trying to get at is for those that don't necessarily know what this sounds like would you be able right now to give us some sort of example of what you know poetry 
like the way you do it sounds like? Yeah, yeah, I could. Is there anything that you guys specifically would want to hear? Are you familiar with any of my work or were they able to get you yeah, a book beforehand? They weren't, unfortunately. I wish okay, I wish it. I wish I wish I read it. Yeah, I'll definitely read it. Yeah, well, I mean, whatever you think, whatever you are like thinking right now, whatever you want to talk about. I mean, this is the founder hour. You know, we have a lot of folks who are listening, who are founders themselves or want to be founders or just want to take a leap and start something that they've always wanted to start and just never uh, actually did it. So, okay. All right. Yeah. I'll do this piece. It's called Learn Fear. Learn fear can be overcome when you realize the voice inside your head is not yours. It's an imitation of the voices from before repeating on a loop inside your quiet core, receiving since your youth when your choices weren't even yours. Perceiving was the proof, but reality has many doors, so why are we still fighting other people's wars? Learned fear can be overcome when you realize the voice inside your head is not yours. It's an imitation of the voices from before, repeating, repeating, repeating on a loop inside your quiet core. And you can't tell the difference because it sounds the same. But trust me when I tell you most of what you think is from somebody else's brain. They have us trained, shackled by imaginary chains, imaginary rules for imaginary games, but they don't know the reasons either. So where should we place the blame? And who is they anyway when we're all the same? Our parents had parents and their parents had parents. Apparently it hurts to see, so I'll be transparent. The world is so much bigger than your insecurities. And they don't speak on your behalf without your soul's authority. The world is so much bigger than your culture or community, and they don't speak on your behalf without your soul's authority. Because if it's all a story, then nobody else can tell it for me. Since I'm always transforming, I defy a category. When you do the same thing, same way, it's habit forming. But nothing in this land of woman and man is mandatory. It's all just transitory. Our world's a laboratory. Experimenting on today can change tomorrow morning. And since matter is mostly empty space... We're in a sea of consciousness where the boundaries are erased. So I stared at my reflection until I couldn't see my face. Then I picked myself and put the flowers in an empty vase. If you came for validation, then you're in the wrong place. The only certain satisfaction is becoming what you've chased and there's no running from the inner voice. So it's important that you choose, but it's more important that you know you have a choice. You have a choice. Are you living someone else's life? You have a voice. Does it haunt you in the dead of night? Would you fly if you weren't convinced to be afraid of heights? And who convinced you anyway? They had no fucking right. Right? No one can dim your light. You shine within so bright that you could blind the sun from sight and scare him back into the night. No one can dim your light. I said it twice because you're greater than the circumstances that surround your perfect 
life. You're not your nature or your nurture. You're a prototype. And if you hone it right, eventually you'll hack your satellite. At first, it's nothing. Then nothing turns into a whisper. Turn the dial and it gets crisper in your transistor. Wait a while and the whisper turns into a scream. It overwhelms your system and you won't know what it means. But pump the volume up and it can tell you all your dreams till pretty soon it's the only voice you'll ever need. Now all you have to do is listen when you want to lead. Your fear disintegrates when you decide to stop and breathe. It's your authentic voice. No matter where you go, it never leaves. And that's God, no matter what religion you believe. I'm starting my own religion. And everyone is welcome. But nobody can join. If you did, you'd miss the point. Wow. That's amazing. We saw it live. We finally saw it live. Yeah. Speechless. Uh, How how do you you remember all that? How do you like, I mean, how many, I don't know how many you've written at this point, but how do you just like store all that in your freaking mind? A lot. You know, (laughs) so we worked with this amazing uh, illustrator. Yeah. And so he made 60 illustrations for the book, right? Mm. And there's two ways to consume the book. You can consume it by getting the actual book or the audio book. And I love the illustration because it gives it like a Shel Silverstein type feel. Mm. Um, and they're really, really dope illustrations and they bring people deeper into the poetry. And then, of course, there's listening to the audiobook because you get my voice, the you know, emotion. you get my inflections, you get the emotion. And then, you know, a lot of times, like, I'll use actual accents and just different yeah. ways to, like, which I sensed a little bit even there when, emphasize you, were talking, when you were talking right now. Yeah, some of the ones that I'm talking about in the book, they're actually very specific for yeah. very specific things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I definitely will use anything I can within my authenticity to connect people and to draw them in. Mm. Um, but what I was going to say is, you know, on the audiobook, it's two and a half hours and I know the whole thing by heart, man. <laughs> yeah. You know, so if I started right now and I tied in all the poems that I have memorized, I mean, I could probably go for four hours straight. Um, And I think, you know, people will come up to me afterwards and they'll be like, you're a fucking savant. Like, how do you do that? And it's not that. First of all, I've put in my time. And like anything else, you know, anything else that both of you guys do, you know, that you've worked so hard to become great at, I'm sure there are elements of it that are uncomprehensible to me well for you it's just second nature at this point yeah i mean yeah. And, and you i mean you wrote these yeah you've written well, i literally these, feel like this. i was just immersed into like a different world when you were like yeah saying that because everything just like felt different like your 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 voice was just like amplified and i feel like that's hard to to translate into like uh like pages which which is gonna be exciting to kind of i mean i think the audiobook is, is an awesome supplement yeah. and i think like a lot of people should listen to that too and yeah and get a sense of like maybe read it and then also listen to the audiobook and get that different experience from it because they're, they're really different bro and, yeah. and they actually are really cool and unique in and of themselves because people have been saying when they're reading it you know people are crying and there's all sorts of shit going on in this book man and uh and but they get to hear it in their own pacing in their own voice, mm. right. which is like actually super interesting. And then the other thing is we spent a lot of time trying to figure out the formatting of everything. I mean, 
countless hours to make sure, as I said, that we were doing justice to the poems. So I'm really proud of the book and the reading of the book. And then for me to just listen to the audio book is such a trip, man. I hope people like take fucking shrooms and go on a ride, man. Like, you know, but what I was going to say is, is that people might think it's so incredible that I can do it, but it's just like any other MC, man. You know, think about an MC that you respect. Just name somebody. A lot of people don't consider him an MC for whatever reason, but I've been listening to Drake for a long time. Drake is incredible. But, uh, yeah, I've, I've listened. I listen to a lot of old school hip hop too. Okay, so, so, so let's let's just take Drake for a second. Yeah. Imagine if Drake took all of his verses that he has memorized that he does when he's on stage, mm-hmm. and he cut out the choruses, and you took out the music, and he just tied them all together. Right. The dude could go for hours, man. Yeah. You know, it's very similar. It's just like an MC's muscle. And so, you know, in many ways, I mean, that's why for me, I always am looking up to MCs. But also I feel like acapella is so different than like rapping over a beat because you're you kind of, you're going on your own like metronome. Like you have your own beat in your mind. And I feel like you've sort of perfected that. So that way, like whenever you're rehearsing it or saying it over and over again, like I'm sure there are like differences and it's not always the same exact thing, but it's very much on beat, even though there is no beat. Yeah, I mean, I've definitely worked on, I mean, I've just spent so much time doing it that I have my own style and my own voice at this time. But I'm just talking about the memorization. Mm, yeah. And, you know, so when people look at me and they're like, how do you memorize that? Yeah. It seems so crazy. It's not crazy. Yeah. All of my poetry friends do it, and they have countless poems. And any MC that you could name has that type of memory muscle. Right. You know, the one thing I was just thinking was with the difference of the book versus, let's say, an audio book, right, or just even a live performance, is when you're reading the book, I mean, you're really focused on the words. I mean, you're focused on the message. Mm -hmm. And you don't necessarily know what the author's voice is if you've never heard the author's voice, Right. right? So now, you know, if you take the exact poem that you just recited and I just read it, my takeaway is going to be very different than the takeaway that I just had. Because right now I'm focused more on your performance entirely, right? Like mm. the like the 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 melody of everything, just like the flow. Like and, and that has a different emotion. Mm-hmm. That has a different way of making me feel. So I do think that it'll be interesting to find out what people think of the book and and after reading it. Because I do think that it'll have a much different you know meaning than just the live performances that you do i think that the poems will have a new life in a different setting so Hmm. i think it'll be very interesting yeah yeah i appreciate you saying that yeah i think uh it was it had a different meaning for me in in doing the book you know like because i would say this without a doubt um was the best artistic experience that I've ever gone through um, in terms of just making me a better poet, MC, songwriter, everything, like actor, you know, wannabe comedian when I'm on stage telling stories, yeah. you know. I think, uh, I think just having to edit the way that I did, to format the way that I did, to really make sure that everything I said was something that I wanted to stand by you know, in 20 years to the best of my awareness right now. You know, I went over every single word with a nook and cranny, and so did Kevin. 
Yeah, uh, Kevin Heckmet, shout out. Yeah, to my yeah, manager. shout out to Kevin. We work with him to make this happen. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So he was, you know, instrumental in doing that as well. And um, you know, the amazing editors at, at Harper One helped out, and uh, my community as well. So we all, it was like a group effort. Um, but ultimately, I think I I come out of this um, feeling really excited about what I'm going to write next, you know, and uh, I'm I'm really grateful to this process, you know. What do you see as the future of poetry looking like? I really do think that it could be as big as any other genre. You know, I think in this world that is connected and disconnected simultaneously, there's something about uh, someone standing on stage without anything else to get in the way and saying things that are meaningful to him or her. Um, and it's something that I want more of, you know, myself. Do you think that the reason why it hasn't been so popularized is because, especially, I guess, for men, it's not necessarily the cool thing or the the societally accepted thing to you know be soft quote unquote or you know to have those meaningful conversations yeah i mean i don't really give a shit i mean clearly, i really yeah, don't yeah, i really yeah. I, like first of all what does soft even mean like what emotional or vulnerable you know i mean vulnerability is strength unless you're in an environment where your life is on the line or something is going on that you you can't be vulnerable in that environment well that's understandable you know, but then oftentimes we take that environment from the past and we bring it into the present when we're not in that situation anymore, you know? So I think that vulnerability is strength. I try to lead by example. If people don't follow, you know, I'm okay with that. You know, if, if I'm vulnerable, you know, here, here's the thing. When I do the poetry workshops, I get people to tell these really deep stories and to get on stage and to perform them. And I create an environment that is only positive and constructive so that no matter what it is that people are saying, whether it's a story that's really personal to them that they've never told anyone else in their entire life, when they get on stage, they're celebrated for it. And it's a process of being like a rock star in, with something that they might even have shame around. So that is alchemy. You watch someone go through the experience of alchemy live when something like that happens. And... Yet there's no way for me to get those people there unless I choose to be vulnerable first. Mm -hmm. It's irresponsible for me to ask someone else to be vulnerable without me first stepping into it. And I try to do it in a way that's powerful, you know, so that people can look at me and say, okay, like I trust you and I'm down to take that ride with you. Um, and in life in general, if you want other people to be vulnerable with you, you have to be vulnerable with them first. And if they're not vulnerable back, they're probably fucking assholes. <laughs> and then you don't have to hang out with them anymore. So it's actually like a shortcut to intimacy. Mm. It's like, do I want to spend more time with this person or not? I'm not interested in pursuing relationships at this stage in my life that aren't moving and meaningful to me. Mm -hmm. You know, so, but that's where I am. Other people can be It's interesting because you, you, we talk about the future of poetry and, and also like technology and how it's advancing. And a big part of poetry has always been the physical aspect, like getting up on stage and like just sharing your spoken word with a lot of people. But right. with technology, like you see a lot of poets who post, you know, YouTube videos or Instagram videos or just trying to get it out that way. Yeah. But there's, I feel like there's something different there where you're not 
like seeing that vulnerability in person, that person really touch reaching somewhere within themselves that they've never gone. So how do you see that translating over like with technology advancing? Well, look, it's the same thing as comedy. I mean, you know, it's always funnier in the room. Right. It just is, man. You know, you can watch the most amazing special at home. Oh, some of these like Instagram comedians are like fucking hilarious. Oh, they're all (laughs) hilarious. Like, I mean, no, they're not all hilarious. hilarious. Many of them are hilarious. There's like (laughs) world-class comedians out there right now. Yeah. And there's so many like yeah. really incredible artists, you know, but still it's funnier in the room. Yeah. You know, if I'm not there, I can't feel their energy. Yeah, exactly. It's an energy thing. It's an energy thing. So it's the same thing with poetry, you know, in that but it's way. It's also the same thing with music. I mean, if, if I'm at a live Drake concert, it's going to be very different than if I'm just listening to him on my AirPods. Well, Drake is exactly. a bad example because I think he's a better, uh, he's better on wax <laughs> than he is in, Fine, but in, like, let's, stage, let's say but like a, of, yeah, a, a band, rock band, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, like you, there's that energy there that you're not going to get, For sure. you know, listening to them. But I mean, I think that even with poetry, like, you know, like I, I've listened to so many Rudy Francisco stuff. I mean, every time I just listen to it, I don't even have to really look at him. Like, it could be in the background on YouTube. Mm-hmm. And I still, like, it's like music. I mean, it, right. it's it's just, there's no there's no music behind it. It's just the, it's just the lyrics. Well, we talk about it all the time, too, like, as technology advances and as we're encouraged more to just sit at home and everything's just going to come to us, whether it's food or content or whatever, people are just more and more going to crave these physical experiences. And I think things like poetry and music and things where, like, you just, that energy isn't easily translated when you're just sitting at home um, through the airwaves uh, are going to be reasons for people to get together in the real world. Yeah. And I actually want to say one more thing about what you said earlier. Like we were fucking cool, man. The environment that the poetry lounge, you know, it still is cool. But yeah. when we were there, man, like it was on fire and poetry had so much possibility when it was on HBO's Deaf poetry jam, they won the Tonys. They were on Broadway you know, I have friends in that show, like Saul Williams. I mean, people, it was it was really an unbelievable time to be a poet because there were no rules and no boundaries and everyone had a unique voice. Mm. And uh, And then for whatever reason, it just kind of like went back into an underground space. You know, it never got beyond that pop that it had. And the way that I kind of view it, and maybe I'm kidding myself because I love the genre so much, but the way that I view it is like, you know, the way skateboarding was. Skateboarding was like a big thing for a while and like, I don't even know, the early 70s, something like that. And then it went away. Mm-hmm. And it came back with the 90s. Dogtown, Z-Boys, you know, all of them, and then all the way to Tony Hawk and X Games. And now it's just a staple in sports. It's yeah. a cultural thing that people do it's a lifestyle right and i think that poetry is going to come back like that and it, it really frustrated me to see a lot of my contemporaries who were way better writers than me way better performers than me not be able to make a living at it mm-hmm. you know and getting to a place where maybe they started families or they had other responsibilities and they decided to pursue a different thing but i mean profits man you know people but- that have really impacted my life but, you know, I'm trying to understand why it hasn't broken out, right? Like, and why comedy, for example, has. Like, I get it. Like, it makes you laugh. But that's one emotion, right? Like, with poetry, depending, I mean, it could also make you laugh depending on what the poem's about. But it could also make you cry. It could also make you just think. Why ha- Why hasn't there been, you know, that sort of acceptance of poetry as 
an art form to the masses? I think it's because, I mean, look, you had people like Leonard Cohen and Maya Angelou, like mm-hmm. these unbelievable poets, you know? And then you have people like Rumi and you, I mean, there's different generations of poets that are still very relevant and very well respected. Um, what I think is, is that in terms of popular culture, if you want to break a genre, you have to make a star. Right. And if you make a star, it's an anomaly. There's going to be more stars. Well, maybe. Yeah. If you make one star, there could be more stars or that star could be the only star. And if it's one star, it's going to fizzle out and no one's going to care. But if you make more stars, then it's a movement. It has legs, man, and the momentum will take care of itself. I mean, I want kids to be like, I want to be a poet when I grow up. You know, there's eight-year-old kids out there right now that I I want them to be thinking in that way, the way that they're thinking about comedy or the way that they're thinking about acting or the way that they're thinking about writing or, or rapping or whatever. Like, and I think that, you know, that would be an awesome world to live in. I agree. Yeah, I mean, I I, I personally like poetry, so I, I am still very surprised that it's not something that has been more popularized than something that we see like globally. Even I mean, yeah, it's because I I just think that people have a negative connotation of poems. I think they do think it's touchy feely, you know, more feminine. But I really don't think that's the case at all. We need more femininity. <laughs> Yeah, totally. I, I I I think what poem need, poetry needs is better PR, is what it needs. And Fair I, enough. Let me I, know if you know anything. And I hate to say that because I don't like PR people. So, um, <laughs> but you know, uh, I I don't want to end on that note. But um, you know, what are the things that you're going to work on beyond uh, this book? And you know, what are the things that are happening in your life right now? Um, I mean, this book is pretty all encompassing right now. Um, and then. You know, as we move on, we'll figure out what the next steps are. But I mean, I'm constantly performing. Right now, we're doing a lot of podcasts, and I'm really enjoying it. So I'm considering starting my own. Sweet. Um, and you mentioned like in between, like maybe not at the moment, but before when you know, just in between writing poems, you just sort of live your life, and when you're inspired, you write. Um, mm-hmm. What do you What do you like to do, like when you're not writing? I love to travel, man. I love it. I love uh, being in other cultures, getting completely outside of my comfort zone, you know, different food, different language, not knowing the environment, not knowing anyone. I like to travel with my girlfriend. I mean, we love to travel together and I love to travel for work, but I also just love to travel by myself, Mm. you know, and sometimes I'll travel with my friends too, but by myself is such a unique experience because I've traveled all around the world by myself, man. And you show up and no one knows what you do. Mm-hmm. No one knows who you think you are. <laughs> it doesn't even matter. It doesn't matter. <laughs> Nothing matters anymore. Yeah. You know, and you're, you actually, however the world responds to you is the fastest mirror to who you actually are at that time in your life because it's immediate. Right. Because you're not even with anyone who you have any history with. So you don't even have them to look at you and say, I know you. They have no preconceived notions of who you are. It's pretty much, I'm looking at you and this is who you exactly. are. Exactly. Yeah. How are you showing up? So it's a quick mirror to knowing who you actually are, not who you think you are. Right? Yeah. And uh, so I love that. And then I love just getting into adventures, man. Um, and then I like pursuing things that I'm not good at. You know, because it makes me feel like um, I have to play. 
Like what? Like what's an example? I like boxing. Like I, lo- <laughs> I love boxing. I'm, I'm shit at it. You know. Yeah, yeah. But I like doing it because, uh, because I'm a student. You know, and because I'm outside of my comfort zone, mm-hmm. and because, you know, what do we do, man? We, we basically like as kids, we play. That's all we do. We play. We learn, and we play. And we use our imagination. And then as adults, we find something that we're good at. We get paid for that thing. We call it work. You know, and we kind of calcify. You know, we, we stop challenging ourselves. And we stop playing, you know. And so one of the ways that I remind myself to play in my art, which is now my profession, is to try my best to play outside of it. Mm. And... uh and then when I come back to my art, I have that playful energy mm. of who knows where this is going to go rather than like, I have to make something fucking great. It's just blah, 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 blah. So boring, dude. Right. And you, you can't, know? I mean, it's really, it's even, it becomes even harder to do when you're not exploring or like just exposing yourself to a bunch of stuff because it's easy to get caught up in the same day-to-day shit over and over and over again and there's like nothing new. Right. And then how are you supposed to find inspiration to like create at that point? Right. But that's the thing is that everything is new. You know, if you yeah. only had one minute to be alive, what would you do? Hmm. I'm asking. I mean, I, I, was, know? <laughs> I have no idea. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It's a good question. I would probably contact all the people that I love and just let them know. Hmm. That's beautiful. What, what do you think you would do? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I'd probably... I feel I wish I had a more creative answer, but I'd probably do the same. I just let people know, like, hey, I love you guys. This is it. Yeah, because that's <laughs> that is the that's the thing to do. Right. And I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean like of yeah. course I mean, like what the fuck else are you gonna do? Well, right, that's exactly it. So <laughs> I do have one more thing that I would do, but it's would I have enough time? But basically, you know, the first thing I would do, of course, you would wanna say to the people yeah. that you love that you love them because in the end, that's all we have, man. Right. You know, we don't take anything with us. Yep. We literally, you know, our whole lives is just like letting go. Yeah. And in the end, we let go of everything we built. We let go of our bodies. We let go of our identities. We let go of our souls. And the only thing that you get to leave with is the impact that you've had on the people that you love and the world at large. That's mm-hmm. it, man. It's just the energy that you've put out into the world. So yeah, of course, you would want to like call the people that you love and be like, yo, I at that lo- point, it's like, why would you even work, like focus on something for yourself? It's like, you're done. Like, so you want to, you want to tell other people like you love them and that's pretty much. Yeah, that, that would yeah, be it. For Except, other people. So, so here's my caveat is, is that if I couldn't, let's say I didn't have a phone. Okay. Or I had no, when no one else was around and I was alone and I knew I had a minute left to live. If I didn't get overcome with the fear of that, which is certainly possible, you know, mm-hmm. I would want to look around. I mean, we take everything for granted, dude. We take the colors for granted. We take the way that things feel for granted. We take the gravity that's holding us down. We're just completely unaware of how amazing the fucking world is. The world is amazing. The air on your face, the breath that you're taking, you know, that you can see, that you can hear sounds that we're talking right now in imaginary language. Like we've just decided 
Yeah. Like as a collective society that what I'm saying has meaning and you guys can understand me, I can actually communicate. It's the world is amazing, man. You know, and if I was going to die, I would just want to be here to fully be here as much as I could, as long as I could. And so why do I have to wait until I think I'm going to die to do that? You know, and by the way, various degrees of success and failure. I'm not trying to say right. I'm in I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. I get in moods. It's all, you know, of course, but that's what I would want. I always thought you know, about like, to be here now. What's the best way to constantly think that way? You like, can't. Like, do you tattoo it on your fucking fo- like arm to like wake up every morning and be like, hey, what if you had one minute to live? You know what I'm saying? Like that feeling, like it's easy to get caught up in the day-to-day shit. Like things just come your way and you forget and you we forget as human beings we forget and all of a sudden something has to remind us that life is short and we need to appreciate what's around us like i just always wonder like is there a way of just constantly remembering that well yeah you do practices <laughs> that train you to be in the moment that train you to return to being here and now like med- meditation. Yeah, I meditate yeah, yeah. twice every day. I haven't missed one meditation in over four years mm-hmm, or mm-hmm, whatever mm-hmm. it's been. You know, like right. it's a non-negotiable part of my life because I knew that if I used the word negotiable, I would negotiate, <laughs> you know. So, you know, that's one thing. I have, you know, bodywork people that I go to and I go to Moto Yoga for hot yoga to release energy out of my system and I read great books and I keep high vibrational people around me. I don't care about finance or success. I care about people who are seekers, who are trying to make their lives better and, you know, the people around them better um, and who have a care for the world at large. Um, You know, there's many, many things. I go to a therapist. Like, people talk shit about therapy. That's the whole soft thing. It's like, who the fuck wouldn't want to have a coach for your life? Right. For your life? I think everybody everybody should have a coach for their life. I know, but there's a lot of people that still look down on it. You know, they look at it like, oh, that's weak or whatever. And it's like, okay, man, like, how you doing? You happy? But then you also hear everyone say, I don't know what the fuck I'm doing with my life. And that's exactly what the whole thing is. Because we're spinning in the middle of space right now. We're on a rock. No one knows what we're doing here. Yeah. And we're all in it together, you know? So I don't even remember what the initial question was. I mean, yeah, it doesn't matter. But (laughs) But yeah, I love uh, what you're saying. I think think, I've always thought about this too. I think from a young age, it's important for folks to have, like you said, you didn't have mentors growing up. I didn't have mentors growing up mm -hmm. either. So I know the importance of having that sort of guiding person who you can look up to and just ask questions and help like they can help you stay on the right track because mm-hmm. it's so easy to like just not know how to navigate through the world as you grow older and then you know you get to a point where you know you talk about folks who are sort of stuck in their jobs and just going and it's work and that's because they had no other choice maybe like that's they just ended up that way right, right? so maybe if they had some sort of guidance whether it's like mental or just in in their professional career um, they could have ended up doing maybe or you know something that they're more happy with or just find more purpose in, right? But it's never too late. And no. that's the whole thing is, is that you're right yeah. and it's never too late. You know, uh, I talk about this in the book too. There was this woman, uh, Dolores, that used to, she like lived in, um, okay, this woman that I knew, she was a family friend. I was still figuring out my monetary situation. She let me rent out our back house. So I had this like tiny little space that I could literally like put my arms across and touch both walls. And I was there for a long time, man. And, uh, and her mom moved in 
and her name was Dolores. She was in her 80s. And her and I became really close friends. We shared a kitchen and we would like talk about life and love. And I would complain about my ex-girlfriends or, you know, whatever was going on with me. And I came to really care about her. And then one night I woke up and, uh, you know, like I had this big window. And so through the blinds, I saw the ambulance lights and she was getting taken away. And I saw her on the stretcher and she was still alive, but she was having major health complications. And I went and I visited her in the hospital and she had tubes in and out of her system. She had a super high fever. She didn't recognize me. And the doctors were giving her like a bad prognosis So I basically said my goodbyes to her. I was like not wanting her to be in pain anymore. And then, of course, over time, Dolores got better. You know, she wasn't done. And they moved her to a retirement community. And I went and I visited her in the retirement community. And uh, we were sitting in a little garden outside. And she was in a good mood. So I was like, Dolores, why are you in such a good mood? And she leans in and she goes, I met a guy. No. So I'm like, really? (laughs) She said, yeah, I met a guy. She had moved in like a month earlier. She met this guy and they started dating. You know, and I'm like, I don't know. They fall in love, not fall in love. I have no idea. Here's the point. She was excited about something. Yeah. She was surprised by something, you know, and I thought, wow, I was saying goodbye to her. And not only did she survive, but now she's actually sparked by something new. And so for anyone listening, you know, it doesn't matter how old you are, man. If you're not willing to be surprised by life and excited by life, you're not truly living. And I'm talking to myself too, you know? So, uh, yeah. I love it, man. Hey, this has been... Now, that's a good note to end on. Yeah, this has been amazing, dude. Um, Thank you so much. Thank you for being on the show and sharing your story and... What you've, like, I mean, how far you've come in your careers is, is amazing. And we can't wait to see what happens with the book yeah, totally. and what comes next. So thank, thank you, you so man. much. Yeah. And anybody who's listening to this, you know, you can get the book on in-q.com, uh, you know, or you can get it on Amazon or, you know, they're going to have it in uh, independent bookstores. We tried to get as many as we could into independent bookstores or Barnes and Noble, of course. And we'll put and the link in the description. So Amazing. And then just tag me, man. When you get the book, tag me. Let me know what you think of it. And, and on it's social just media. At NQ? At NQ Life. NQ Life. That's NQ right. Life on social media. And then the website is in-q.com. Awesome, man. Thank you. Thank you for having me, man. Both of you guys.